the headlines on RT International as Ukrainian forces are planning to strike Russia's non-conflict zones with Western-made storm shadow missiles and HIMARS rockets. That's according to the Russian Defense Ministry that says the move would vastly escalate NATO's involvement in Ukraine. They shelled us so hard that they even hit the cellar where we were hiding. It feels like they were on the hunt for us. Before our rise, the neighboring houses were burning. Yeah, in the program, we also hear from one of the many families whose lives have just been, well, shattered by years of Ukrainian shelling. Burkina Faso praises Mali for calling to remove UN troops from its country, while Western states are apparently pinning the blame for Mali's decision on Moscow. It's good to have you with us for this hour's program on RT International. An awful lot to talk about tonight, live from Moscow. And while Kiev continues to attack various Russian border territories, Russia's defence minister is warning of a massive escalation. He says attacks continue to be repelled. However, cautions that Ukraine is planning a massive strike on Crimea and other areas using Western weapons. Ukrainian forces continue to attempt to carry out offensives in the South Donetsk, Zaporozhye and Donetsk regions. In doing so, the Kiev regime uses a large number of Western weapons and elite units whose personnel were trained by NATO specialists. Since June the 4th, the Ukrainian forces have launched 263 attacks against Russian positions. Thanks to the competent and selfless actions of our units, all of them were repulsed and the enemy did not reach its targets. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu has warned against Ukrainian military leadership planning to use Western weapons to attack certain parts of Russia that are not in the active zone of hostilities, including Crimea. Now, they're planning to do this by using HIMARS rockets as well as storm shadow air-launched cruise missiles that are delivered by the United States and the United Kingdom, respectively, only accelerating NATO's involvement into this conflict. Now, according to the defense minister, an operation to strike uh, Crimea, for instance, will result in immediate strikes against the decision-making centers in Ukraine. According to our information, the command of the Ukrainian forces is planning to launch strikes on the territory of the Russian Federation, including Crimea, with HIMARS and Storm Shadow missiles. The use of these missiles outside the area of the special military operation would indicate the full-fledged involvement of the US and UK in the conflict and would demand immediate strikes on the decision-making centers on the territory of Ukraine. Ukrainian attacks on the Donetsk region uh, has been uh, successfully repulsed by uh, Russian military, but despite all of that, Ukraine is still uh, can, continues to carry out its uh, offensives uh, in that same region using not only Western weapons, but also a military that was trained by NATO. Now, despite the very long-awaited Ukrainian counteroffensive that started earlier this month, it really seems like Ukraine has failed to achieve any significant advances on the ground. The conflict in Ukraine, of course, continues to take a daily toll on civilians caught up in it. People are often faced with a very sad option of either staying or fleeing. Some have chosen to find shelter in Russia, as Igor Danov now explains. Kiev has made a colossal PR push to brand the ongoing war as the nationwide uprising against Russian invaders. Uncomfortable images of young men going out of their way to escape and resist mobilization are swept under the rug, as well as the fact that amid the refugee crisis, millions ran into the embrace of their supposed abuser, fleeing to Russia. This 
is one of such families. Alexander and Marina used to live a quiet, reclusive life deep in the local forestry. Everything changed when their lone cabin became a target for Ukraine's troops. Denial slowly made way for acceptance and the couple made a heart-wrenching decision to flee to the nearest town of Kremennaya. They left behind their old life, but not Ukrainian bombs. We built this structure because we were constantly being shelled. They struck a neighbor, it landed here. If there was no such barrier here, the fragments would have hurt us. Recently, they shelled us. My wife even went to the doctor because of the poisoning. Apparently, they fired some kind of mark. On the 26th, they shelled us so hard that they even hit the cellar where we were hiding. It feels like they were on the hunt for us. Before our rise, the neighboring houses were burning. My husband and I tried to put out the fires. Their neighbor says that all these shellings actually sought to displace as many people as possible. The Ukrainians were attacking us even before the Russians entered the city. Only Ukraine brought us all this trouble. Russia did not fire a single shot at the city. Russian soldiers were greeted as the real liberators, and now we have the same good attitude towards them. They share their rations with us. We ask the Ukrainians, why are you hitting us? They say to create more refugees, so they leave their homes and head to the West. The authorities make good money out of that. In a way, that worked. To date, Russia has sheltered more Ukrainian refugees than any other country. And these people regret nothing. Some kind of application for a passport, for a quota, an application for a vacation. It all had to be in Ukrainian. In the stores we were forced to speak Ukrainian, to greet them in Ukrainian because they serve in Ukrainian. I don't understand half of it. Also in government offices. My children were forced to speak Ukrainian starting from kindergarten. Russians are the second largest ethnic group in Ukraine. Following the 2014 revolution, Kyiv went on a mission to make the life of every single one of them miserable. Neo-Nazi groups were nourished as they hovered above the law. In 2014, when Azov and right sector appeared, they gave books to schools on how to teach the killing of Russian people. Right Sector was created and it seemed that you can do whatever you want, just call yourself a Right Sector member. They came to us to the hunter's cabin when we were still guarding the area. They broke the locks. For what? I say, tell me, I'll open it to you. They answer that they're Right Sector members and they do what they want. Those bastards. They beat the elderly women. That's fine for them, but as the fighting began, they immediately screwed up. Since last year, Ukraine lost huge swathes of its land. As for the people here, though, with every policy, every step of the way, Kiev lost them long before that. Amigashdanov reporting from the Donbass, RT. Now, of course, various Western countries continue to supply Ukraine with weapons, but the stockpiles really are running low. And while Kiev continues to ask for more, the foreign minister says that until the conflict is won, there will never be enough military support. I will say there were enough weapons on the day of victory. When we win, I will say thank you. The weapons were enough. But until then, everything will never be enough for me. No matter how much you give, everything will not be enough. Because while there is still no victory, it means there was not enough help. It is very simple.
Well, NATO is certainly feeling the burden. Uh, the NATO chief saying weapons and ammo stocks are severely depleted. It's also according to papers published in Der Spiegel. It reports Germany's support for Ukraine has left Berlin's armed forces with roughly 20,000 artillery shells left. We discussed this with a geopolitical analyst, Stefan Gajic, who says NATO was not and is not prepared for this. This is, let's say, a structural problem that the West has in general uh, when it comes to uh, the approach towards the uh, industry. The, they were preparing for uh, really large-scale uh, wars because NATO turned into some kind of a imperial uh, police force that was imposing its will on different uh, parts of the globe. But this is the first time that it is in a major conflict with another uh, power that is uh, similar to, to it. Now they have a problem because uh, the stockpiles within Western countries are already critical. We hear this from Great Britain, we hear this from Germany, from other uh, countries, Ukrainian forces, which are which is basically NATO force. Uh, it's not that only in name. It's equipped completely by NATO gear and uh, NATO soldiers are are, are illegally fighting uh, on the Ukrainian side. This army is surviving a huge defeat as we speak. There is a lot of corruption within the Ukrainian army that some officers are actually selling brand new weapons and that, that, that uh, they don't know where these weapons are going. Obviously, there is a lot of corruption uh, happening around this uh, war effort uh, from the Western side. And I think that uh, we only see at the tip of the iceberg. To Africa now, where Mali has decided to withdraw UN troops from the country. Its neighbor, Burkina Faso, is supporting the move and is invoking others to respect the actions. The government of Burkina Faso hails this courageous decision taken by Mali's transitional authorities and congratulates Mali for this choice, which is in line with the strategic vision of the Malian state in the fight against terrorism and for the restoration of peace and security in the Sahel. It encourages the government and the brotherly people of Mali in this affirmation of the sovereignty of the Malian state and the expression of the will of Malians, and for Malians to be the sole masters of their destiny. The government of Burkina Faso invites the international community to strictly respect the choices made by Mali. Well, in uh, the wake of all of this, uh, certain Western countries are actually pinning the blame on Moscow. Germany says Russia's been stoking anti-Western sentiment in the African nation now saying that German troops will remain in Mali for at least another year. The United States regrets the transition government of Mali's decision to revoke its consent for MINUSMA. MINUSMA's drawdown must be orderly and responsible, prioritizing the safety and security of peacekeepers and Malians. We are not surprised that the Malian transitional government in Russia will use the forthcoming extension of the UN mandate to make political capital out of it. Our interest is still an orderly withdrawal. So the UN peacekeeping mission has been in Mali for a decade. The task has been combating terrorism. The national government claims those foreign troops have done very little to quell the violence after all these years, and therefore they should go. It comes amid a rise in anti-Western sentiment in the region, particularly directed against former colonial power France. The government of Mali calls for the withdrawal of MINUSMA without delay. MINUSMA seems to have become part of the problem by fueling community tensions exacerbated by extremely serious allegations which are highly detrimental to peace, reconciliation and national cohesion in Mali. Earlier we spoke to a local journalist who explained why Mali has asked for, well, the withdrawal of the UN troops, basically saying they got to go. 
Concerning the security situation, UN could not stop the fighting between uh, uh, jihadism, rebellions uh, that was happening in Mali. So for the, for the populations, UN is almost a bit part of the problem because they never responded while there's an attack plan where they get to targeted by jihadists. UN presence is never there. It's just after when the problems happen that you can see UN coming and to a point make a report or probably to help people with uh, uh, food or any kind of uh, this kind, uh, any kind of situation concerning uh, the accommodations or whatever. And that was not what the populations were expecting from the UN. So it's a thing that uh, MINUSMA or other I don't, troops has helped the Malian uh, uh, security forces to maintain this. Uh, uh, this situation, this uh, to bring back this to this security is very, it's uh, not real, it's a conform to it. I mean, it's they worked a lot, they worked. We can just give this uh, this gratitude to the Malian force itself, not to the uh, not to the uh, UN forces here presence here in Mali. And if the Malian government think that it's time for Minister to go, I think they know what they're doing because they are the one who invite them here. If today they ask for their departure, so which means they are ready to handle the security by themselves. The EU has snubbed the Arab League over its readmission of war-torn Syria. One member of the League has described the EU's cancellation of an upcoming meeting with its officials as, quote, regrettable. Readmission of Syria was a decision taken unanimously by all the members of Arab League. The League's decision had to be appreciated by the European Union, but cancelling its meeting with the Arab League, which had not been held for four years, was a regrettable decision. The Arab League lifted its suspension of Syria last month, following more than a decade of tensions between, well, essentially the war-torn neighbour and its, uh, I guess, the, the whole region, to be honest with you. A Syrian President Bashar al-Assad attended a recent Arab League meeting in Saudi Arabia he described as an historic opportunity for achieving peace in the region. Western powers, however, including the EU, have stood firm against negotiating with Damascus as they have long supported insurgent groups fighting Assad all about kicking him out to achieve regime change, although the Western media told you it was a civil war, of course. Now, the EU has, however, met with non-governmental members of Syrian civilian society groups to discuss the future of the Middle East nation. Now, Syria's foreign ministry says the EU is opposing the country's fundamental interests. Syria, which has withstood a bloody campaign of terrorism, is determined to cooperate with Arab brethren and allied states across the world to consolidate its victories and offset the dire upshot of economic sanctions against it. Let's take this conversation further now. Political analyst Saeed Sadek joining us live from Cairo. A very good evening, sir. Always great to have you on the program. Just, uh, just off the top of your head, what do you, what do you think? What do you make of uh, Brussels' decision to cancel these, uh, this meeting with uh, the Arab League over its readmission of Syria? This is a diplomatic uh, decision. Uh, if you imagine if that meeting had taken place, you will get 27 EU foreign ministers sitting with uh, 22 Arab foreign ministers, including the Syrian foreign minister. That would be diplomatic embarrassment for the EU and also for the Americans, who had made a lot of bets that they were able to change the regime in Damascus. Now, if that meeting would have taken place, it would be a clear admission that they had failed. And that's why there was no other option but to say we will postpone indefinitely this 
a, a, a ministerial meeting that happens every four years, mm -hmm. but it does not affect or spill over by you know the multilateral relations economically, security, diplomatically in other fields. So there is no spill over on Arab European relations. Yeah, you know, it's. It, I mean, it was even just a couple of months ago, or was it less than that? In, in Washington, they were talking about passing legislation to officially not recognize Syria's readmission into the Arab League. I mean, talk about some bad blood here, Mr. Sadek. I mean, at one point during what, what the Western media like to call the civil war in Syria, of course, it was never a civil war, but we had, at one point, every single NATO country was pumping weapons into Syria. And we also know of many other countries that were training, weaponizing, and financing are basically armies of mercenaries and terrorists to achieve regime change. I guess maybe we should not be surprised that the EU is, shall we say, a bit annoyed about this rapprochement with the Arab League. If you remember when this Syrian conflict erupted, and it, it had to do with uh, the so-called Qatari gas pipeline that would That's go right. through Syria and Europe, and then it would should it should undermine Nord Stream One and Two and others. When Assad refused to do this project, you had this uh, big project to change the regime in uh, Damascus. Like they said, we have done that in uh, uh, in Iraq. We have done that in Afghanistan. Why don't we do it in Syria? And this is where it happened, where they had the failure, and that's why it is so embarrassing that they will admit back Syria, it means that the, this project had failed. Uh, um, so domestically and regionally and internationally, it would look very bad that you are investing in destroying a country to change its regime for yeah. your own economic interest, not yeah. because of democracy and human rights and all this blah, yeah, But blah, of course, blah, the media, blah, the media blah, blah, and the, as you say, Mr. Sadek, the, the media and the Western politicians at the time were calling this a fight against terrorism and freedom, democracy, humanity. Oh, it's all nonsense. As you said, it was about this Qatari gas pipeline. Poor old Assad at the end of the day. I mean, you've had all this, this external interference in Syria. And then when you recently had this earthquake in Turkey and Syria, certain Western partners were blocking humanitarian life-saving aid from getting into Syria. It's, you know, it's an incredible case of bad blood here. What do you think, Mr. Sadek, when you look at what's going on with the Arab League now? The Arab League represents some extremely powerful players in the world, particularly when it comes to oil members. What should people understand? What should Europe understand about the strength of the Arab League? There is a new Middle East today. The old Middle East is gone. There is now new alliances are emerging. Old animosities among the, the countries of the area is also uh, ending. You have now rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, many Arab countries with Turkey, many Arab countries who used to fight each other are reconciling. So uh, there is a new Middle East that they, they feel that they don't want uh, uh, anybody who would benefit from any conflict to sell weapons here and there. Let's feed the Saudi-Iranian conflict so that we buy, we sell weapons uh, to Saudis and the Gulf states. Uh, now this is ending, and that's why the Gulf states feel today they are very strong, and they don't need to take dictates. And I, and that's why even if you look at the EU response, it is a little bit muted. Uh, it's just yeah. diplomatic gesture. It's not going to do anything because the trade between the EU and Arab states is hundreds of millions, billions of dollars. 
They cannot afford this. Remember, you have to have to counter terrorism, illegal migration, uh, oil, gas markets, a huge market for the EU. Where yeah, do you go? So, there are so many angles to this, Mr. Sadek. And, and, and listen, by the way, it's so good to have you on the program. But before I let you go, I just got time for one more question here. Because when you talk about the rapprochements in the Middle East and the Arab League, uh, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia being brought together, let's be clear about this. China, China had a really big role in creating these rapprochements in the Middle East at a time when China is getting its footing off the ground with a petro yuan with Saudi Arabia. Talk just briefly, if you would, sir, 20 seconds, if I may. The role of China in this rapprochement of the Middle East and Arab League. China is filling the gap that the Americans and the EU are not filling. It is not now the number one trading partner in the Middle East. It has done with Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia rapprochement. It is now picking on the uh, Palestinian issue. I don't know if it's going to succeed or not. But of course, uh, 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 now even many uh, leading uh, Arab countries are joining BRICS. And that is important. Remember, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, and Egypt have applied for the BRICS. And the BRICS summit will take place in South Africa in August. And that shows you that the area is changing. This is not the old Middle East. It is a new Middle East. Yeah, it certainly is. Saeed Sadek, political analyst, joining us live from Cairo. Always appreciate your commentary. Thank you very much. Four people have been killed and another four wounded in an exchange of gunfire near an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. This comes amid an escalation in violence between Israeli and Palestinian forces in the region. The Israeli military says uh, assailants opened fire at a petrol station on a highway near the settlement of Eli. And one of, the, uh, one of them was reportedly killed. Israeli authorities are currently searching for a second suspect. We spoke with a representative here of an Israeli volunteer medical service. This whole idea of, of responding, not responding to political issues, it's not relevant. Uh, gunmen came out and killed eight people uh, in cold blood, and uh, that's something which, which is always tragic. Our volunteers are first responders from all backgrounds and all nationalities here in Israel. Responded to the incident, treated uh, the injured, performed CPR on some of those who were unfortunately later pronounced dead at the scene. And one of the amazing things that the organization does that other organizations in, in Israel throughout do as well is bring people together from different walks of life. And through that, both the you know, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, everybody working together to try and save lives, which is an ethos that supersedes everything, including religion. All religions value life. And that's something which uh, we all have in common. We all share. And if we connect with enough commonalities, then hopefully we won't uh, see these incidents take place again. The U.S. Secretary of State has wrapped up his two-day trip to China after saying a lot of pretty words about cooperation and friendship. But despite that, Washington continues to pile pressure on various Chinese companies, along with countries that maintain friendly ties with Beijing. More on that now with this correspondent from CGTN. After spending two days in Beijing, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returned home with a positive signal towards bilateral ties. As the highest-ranking official to travel to China since President Joe Biden took office in 2021, Blinken's visit aims to navigate tensions with Beijing. His trip was designed to follow a meeting between President Xi Jinping and Biden in Bali last November, where the two leaders agreed to strengthen the relationship. 
Well, after nearly six hours of talks with Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang, Blinken tweeted about discussions on how both sides can responsibly manage the relationship through an open channel of communication. Qin echoed this sentiment, stating that they had candid, in-depth and constructive discussions on bilateral ties and regional and international issues. Taiwan inevitably topped the agenda, with Qin reiterating that the Taiwan question is at the core of China's interests, being the most consequential issue and the most pronounced risk in the China-U.S. relationship. Both sides have agreed to maintain high-level interactions, and Secretary Blinken extended an invitation to Qinggang to visit the U.S. soon. They also agreed to continue moving forward with the consultations on improving the current bilateral ties. Well, the prevailing view in China is that while the U.S. asks for communication, it simultaneously suppresses and contains China through various means. Despite Blinken's presence in the Chinese capital, prospects for significant breakthroughs are slim as bilateral ties have already been strained and have grown increasingly fraught in recent years. While pushing to resume high-level diplomatic talks, the U.S. has sanctioned Chinese companies, pressured allies to restrict semiconductor exports to China, rallied other advanced economies to counter what it sees as Beijing's economic coercion, and signed a new trade deal with Taiwan. Well, these actions have promoted Beijing to question the sincerity of the Biden administration. Despite Washington's attempts to provoke a crisis across the Taiwan Straits and hamper China's development, especially in the high-tech sector, Beijing expresses a desire for more dialogue between the two largest global economies. Well, there is a silver lining in the business sectors as recent visits by Microsoft founder Bill Gates and Tesla founder Elon Musk were warm and positive, highlighting growing economic opportunities for both nations. It is now hoped that Blinken's visit will lead to a fall in relations, paving the way for clearer lines of communication, even though the road to normalcy remains a challenge. And over in Europe, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz welcomed the Chinese Premier. Uh, both governments are expected to talk through economic topics and in particular trade cooperation. But the visit comes just a day after Ch uh, Chancellor Scholz stated the G7 group should de-risk its dependency on China. Well, earlier my colleague Rachel Blevins discussed current issues of the West's relations with China in a conversation with the host of the Silk and Steel podcast. How would you assess the importance of the U.S. Secretary of State's visit to China? It's obviously very important because Blinken's trip has been long anticipated and both sides have treated it as a very important event. But Confucius said, listen to one's words, but watch one's actions. So what we need to wait to see is what action U.S. will take upon the completion of Blinken's trip. I think that's, that's really more important. Uh, but as for the importance of the meeting itself, uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Qin Gang met with uh, Blinken for seven and a half hours. I mean, some, somebody should give Qin Gang a medal. I, I don't know how anybody can listen to Blinken for that long. Blinken stated that both sides recognize the need to work to stabilize their relations, but just how much work does that now involve? I mean, how bad have things become? It's pretty bad. I mean, right now, it's probably the worst in the Sino-American relationship since 1972, since the Nixon visit. So there will be a lot of work that's 
need to be done to put the relationship back on track. But I'm not sure if that's the intent of this current administration. I mean, they say they would. They say their goal is to stabilize the U.S.-China relationship because it's one of the most important bilateral relationship in the world right now. Uh, but at the same time, they, they're doing stuff like placing sanctions on Chinese high-tech sectors. Biden has said in Tokyo that he will not lift those sanctions. So I don't know how, exactly how their action will match with their words. That's why I say we need to wait and see. Let's shift gears a little bit and bring Germany into all of this, because in Berlin, we have the German chancellor currently meeting with the Chinese premier. Can we expect anything substantial to come out of that meeting? That is interesting, because German, unlike United States, they are, their industry is very heavily dependent on China. Germany is being pressured by Washington to act tough on China. And so, so now we see a, a kind of tug of war among the German elite, among the in German industrialists on one hand, and the Atlanticists who are, you know, basically backed by Washington. I'm not overly optimistic because uh, what we have seen since Cold War is that U.S. keep a very tight leash on the European leaders. Any European leaders that dare to have an independent foreign policy that goes against Washington gets slapped down real quick. So again, I. I, I adopt a wait-and-see attitude to see whether German can actually have autonomy they so desire, but that Washington don't, don't want to give it to them. Yeah, meantime, there are stories circulating online that China is uh, in, in the midst of building some sort of military facility with its uh, well, allies on the island of Cuba. Quite a lot of information about that. You can find more about it online.